And that's what I'm pushing my team time and again to stand up in front of your colleagues and say, I took a risk, 10x thinking. If you don't take risks, you will never fail. And I did take a risk, I failed and I'm proud of it. And this is what I learned. If you're tired, if you work long hours, you can't think clear, you won't perform at the top of your capabilities. As simple as that. So I prefer somebody in my team who does not work too hard, but is super sharp when the moment is there. It is amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. That's level five really. Interesting. And in sales, that is rare. Welcome to Road to Revenue Leadership, a show that candidly explores how hard it is to create, build and scale world-class revenue organizations by leaders that have been there, done that and have seen the results. My name is Dylan Mendez, founding CEO of Usight, and I'm excited that you're tuning in to the podcast. If you're a fan of the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Enjoy. For the people that don't know Edward Boete, who is Edward? Um, you know, where do you come from? What has, you know, bring you to you are today? What do you want to say? Okay, well, um, so my name is Edward, that's right. Uh, I'm 40 years old. I am uh, born and raised and still live close to Leuven. So uh, Leuven is close to my heart, I would say. Um, and my youth was basically hockey and scouts. Um, my student life was economica. Uh, and then my career is basically in sales. Um, my hobbies are sports, so I like to do uh, kite surfing, uh, sailing, uh, triathlon, okay. cycling, tennis, and ski. So qu quite a lot of sports in my life. What, what don't you do, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a few more sports actually <laughs> um, uh, that I don't do, but uh, that I actually want to catch up. So um, I try to improve <laughs> myself and do new sports or new hobbies uh, every now and then. Um, really. And then finally, um, you know, the most important in my life is, is my family, right? My, my wife, my daughters, my mom, my sister and my brother. Um, that seems right. That's me. All right. Thanks for this very nice introduction. To go back on the, uh, on the sport thing, are you then the comp competition guy that, you know, want to wanna perform at high level or do you just like to to go physically and, and try new experiments, new, new sports, or what do you, what do you love so much about sports? It depends. Uh, when I was younger, I did, uh, field hockey, uh, and there was competition was an important element. And still, if I play tennis, uh, uh, competition is important, but there's sports where competition is not important, like, uh, kite surfing. That is pure vibes. That is pure friend. <laughs> it's a beach thing. It's a, it's. Yeah, where do you do that? Where do you go kite surfing? Well, in Belgium at the at the, at the coast at the, at the Belgian coast. Uh, okay. But I I take my boards with me to holidays. So we have this uh, group of friends where we go kite surfing on holidays every year at least once. I would say. Um, so yeah, uh, a bit everywhere. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, you know, there is a competitive aspect, but a lot of it is 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 a fun aspect too, actually. Yeah, it's the most fun. important is the fun part. 
definitely. Fern and uh, and keep it all healthy. Exactly. Like health. Health is also a big part of it, yes. <laughs> all right. So, Edward, I'm very psyched to have you on the show um, because I think you have had a pretty interesting career so far. And I can say so far because, in my opinion, you're still very young and you still have a lot to accomplish. Um, but I think that you have also had, have had a, a very interesting experience so far. And so what I suggest is that we quickly go over your uh, LinkedIn resume to give the audience a, you know, a little idea of where you come from, what your background is, what the context is exactly. And then we can go a little bit deeper into, into your past experiences. Um, so you studied economics in finance and marketing after... Uh, or actually during your studies, you did Economica, which uh, I might want to touch because uh, I, I have been in Economica myself. So we, we have to we have to talk about the subject. Um, then you did 10 years at HP, first three years in consulting, very technical job. Then you did one year of procurement. Then you finally enrolled into sales for a good six years. After that, you did two years at AB InBev. Um, about that experience, we'll talk a little bit, about, a little bit more about it later. You did then four years at VMware as global account manager, and then ultimately you end up at Google Cloud. Uh, and now you have almost 10 years of experience, I think, in Google Cloud and are running the department here for the uh, Belgian market, right? And Luxembourg, yes, correct. And Luxembourg, my bad, my bad. <laughs> Belux. <laughs> All right, so maybe we should start with uh, the Economica experience, Edward. Can you maybe kind of share Maybe also share to the uh, to the listeners what is Economica because not everyone knows it and uh, it's actually a pity. But maybe we'll we'll enlighten them for for the people that doesn't know it yet. Yeah, uh, with pleasure. So there's a there's a few thousands of uh, uh, students in Leuven, uh, and uh, the, the the most active students in Leuven are the economics students. It's also the most fun students. Uh, and the most of activities <laughs> happening there. And there's a small group of, uh, at my time, uh, it was 11 persons who were leading all these activities. So that goes from uh, big parties to, uh, you know, the bar um, to uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, the books, the sports, you know, everything. And so it's a small group of, of 11 persons who, who lead that a full year. Um, with a lot of partying, actually a lot of partying, but also a lot of organizations. There's a big budget. I mean, it, it's basically running this bar is a, is a big thing to do, but also the events. Those were uh, events where thousands of students uh, are coming to with a big responsibility. So it was both mm -hmm. fun and responsibility that uh, we did during that year of uh, Economica Presidium. And actually... It's still a big part of my friends. And today I'm cycling with them. And we, 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 we have this group, it's called Velonomica. So uh, it, that, that's a thing Love which never it. ends. Yeah, it's definitely a, fam a family for life. Um, and I, I mean, it's, I, I would say it hasn't really changed. I think now the group is not 11, but 16 people. Uh, but still running with a lot of passion, with a lot of energy. And what I particularly loved about Economica was the, uh, the, drive and ambition to always make it better, always go bigger, always, you know, be yeah. the year that runs it, that makes the most impressive stuff. I don't know. Was it also back then? Oh, yeah. With you? Oh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> the, the things we did during the, the, the election week was, was coconuts. Yeah, it was a really uh, <laughs> fantastic uh, experience. Definitely. 
So if there, if there's one story you you sometimes share with people about that economic experience, is there one in particular that pops up in your mind? Oh boy, uh, I'm so lucky. There were no uh, uh, smartphones at that time. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that says that, enough <laughs> there's a lot of stories that are that are still in my mind but uh, probably this is not the right podcast to talk about it uh, no I, I don't think so I don't think so but uh, yeah I wanted I wanted to touch on the subject because I mean if I look at my experience um, so far I think that Economica has shaped a lot I think for I mean at least in in 2018 that was my year for Economica it felt really like a job I could have done a student job, uh, maybe get paid for it. I did Economica instead, but I'm so thankful for it. The actual responsibility that you got, I mean, that I had uh, in that role, I thought it was uh, it was sublime. Definitely. All right, so let's then move on to uh, you know the the other past experiences if you, that you've had: um, HP, ABM, uh, VMware, Google Cloud. Is there anything that you would like to touch on? Particular stories, anecdotes that you think might be interesting to share with uh, with the audience? Well, if you look at my career, there's definitely one period which which kind of stood out. It's it's the, it's the so I'm I'm into sales for my whole career except for two years basically when I when I was with ABI ABMBF. Uh, that was a very uh, special period. It was also a global role, so. Um, at, you know, uh, I had a kind of financial HR role. So I was the uh, global director for organization. Uh, and I basically traveled to world to reorganize the different regions of uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev. At that time, actually, InBev. Uh, it was before mm-hmm. the acquisition of uh, Anheuser-Busch. Uh, and and my my role was very simple. My, my um, assignment was to cut 30% of all FTEs in supporting functions. That was oh. very special. I learned a lot. Um, you didn't make a lot of friends, I think. Well, they, they used to call <laughs> me Edward Scissorhands. Uh, because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to know that um, Abi InBev had this culture of making sure that they improve their EBITDA, right? And um, basically, it, it, it was a, a way of acquiring companies. And if you acquire a company, you know, you have two CEOs, so you can, mm. you can get rid of one CEO. And the same is true right. for the VP people and the VP supply, etc. So, so it was a very normal thing that happened at that company uh, every year, basically. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it was okay. I actually made a lot of friends there. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, but uh, the job itself, because it was it wasn't actually sales; it was com- something completely different. Was that then something that kind of resonated with you, or some particular learns that you take with you for the rest of your career? Or well, uh, at the one hand, I, I loved the job. At the other hand, I saw that this was not the, the job for me, uh, because basically what I did is, you know, together with these strategy consulting companies like Bain. I analyzed where we could uh, make efficiencies. I made a, a very nice presentation, uh, like 47 versions of that presentation was then actually presented <laughs> to the board because there there needed so many approvals from you know everybody and uh, and then once the board agreed with it, uh, 
basically my role was to get that executed in all the regions and, and monitor it, right? So I, I kind of felt a bit of a, a monkey at the end, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, presenting for the board and then executing down, up, down, up, down. It was like, I, I saw this was not for me. I wanted to be, you know, driving revenue in companies uh, mm. rather than working with strategy consulting uh, firms to 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 rationalize um, companies. Yeah. Anyway. Well, ultimately, I, I, I get that. But um, what I think it's interesting maybe also to, to understand is you were in a sales function at HP for the last six years, and then you decided to go into that role. But yeah. what was it then that kind of convinced you or motivated you to get I, to that job? I did an MBA. And, you know, when, when you do an MBA, so I worked for, I don't know, like eight, nine years uh, at HP. Uh, and I was, you know, in, it was my first job in HP, one company, one kind of, you know, sales role. Uh, and then I did this MBA and all of a sudden the world opened up. Opened all up. the industries, all the people. I worked with doctors and and civil engineers and lawyers and said, whoa, 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 wait. The world is bigger than just sales and just technology. I need to broaden my scope. And that's when mm. I pivoted to the ABI uh, job. Um, yeah, th that's how it Interesting. went. Doing an MBA, basically. All right. So now we are kind of looking going backwards in this discussion, but now I want to understand what actually triggered you to do an MBA in the first place. Lifetime learning, man. I mean, when I, uh, so I studied economics, right, in, in marketing and finance. And then I started mm -hmm. my job, which was very technical at HP, Hewlett Packard. It was like Unix consulting and security, like very technical. Uh, then I did a master in IT first, actually. Uh, and then I did an MBA, like, and, and still now I'm always trying to learn to do new things to, for example, now I'm trying to get my head around quantum computing uh, and, 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 and oh, this, this is LLM, this large language modeling hype, which is going mm. on. So um, lifetime learning, Dylan, that's basically the answer. Well, I love that. That's definitely a value I share uh, profoundly. So I can only, uh, can only feel you. Um, all right. So if you, if you look back then, uh, at your entire career, you know, what would you say that's where I got challenged the most? That was very difficult. I really had to go above and beyond to make those things happen or make myself change to really fit the environment. You know, if you, if you would think of one thing or one experience, where, where were you kind of positioned there? Mm, well, uh, probably the most challenging is the journey I had the past 10 years at Google, right? Uh, when I started Google Enterprise, it was called, uh, I was the first salesperson. I was the first person here in Belgium to, to sell it. Uh, and today uh, we're a very large team um, making big announcements. Uh, and that journey of hyper growth, like 10xing the numbers every three to four years, that was a challenge because it's at the same time getting the revenues in and building the team, right? And doing that at mm -hmm. the same time is, is a big challenge. And if, if you don't do both at the same time, you, you get in trouble very fast. Mm. Interesting. You were kind of in a 
scale-up environment while it was still Google. Exactly the same thing as a scale-up. It's like a scale-up, they need to uh, bring in revenues and at the same time hire talent very fast. And actually, they also need to raise money. That's the only difference. I didn't want to raise money. Google has a lot of money. <laughs> uh, but for the rest, Luckily. exactly the same challenge. Yeah. Yeah. But still, you had the the global organization behind Google. So in what way could you still, you know, make uh, or enjoy the resources that Google have on a global level for the uh, yeah scaling the activities in the, the Belux market? Say again, say again, Dylan. I didn't fully catch the question. Yeah, so... You started as an initial sales for Google Enterprise 10 years ago, but then you just like in a scale up had to scale all the activities, just still make the sales happen, but also hire the team, develop the team, develop yourself in being a leader as well. Um, and while that sounds all challenging, I'm still curious to, to understand, you know, in what way was Google Global maybe a good help, a good resource uh, to, to help you and achieve all of those things? The, the good thing about a successful company is that they have a very clear culture. Just like ABI, they had a clear culture. It was more a culture of cost cutting, while the, 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 the culture of Google is a cu culture of innovation. So it's clear that if you have a clear culture, you know what to do to be successful. It was rad radically different between ABI and Google, but you know that yeah. at Google, when you do... 10x thinking, fail often, fail fast. When, when you, 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 you do all these innovation principles, you apply them rigorously, you are successful. And, and that's, of course, also a difference with, with the scale-up. I didn't need to make the culture of my company. It was there. However, I had to build that culture in my team because we're hiring people from anywhere, right? From all mm -hmm. these other companies. And they need to change their culture into the Google culture, which was a very big challenge, I can tell you. All right. So maybe let's talk a little bit about building a culture. Um, and maybe top of mind, what would you think of in terms of things that any leader could do to actually have a culture in place and really keep the shape of it? Yeah. Um, so the, the first thing to do is to make sure you articulate what the culture is and what that means for you and your team. And you need to make it very visible. Actually, at, at ABMF, they did it very well. They had like visuals where they put, this is our culture, act like owners, etc. And exactly mm -hmm. the same way uh, was done at, at Google. But that was more done uh, at the TGIF. So uh, every Friday we come together and our leaders, so uh, Larry and Sergey at the time, they would come and talk about our culture, talk about all the projects, etc. every week. It's like you, you insert this culture into your veins <laughs> every week, time and again. It's not a one-time one event, it's time and again. And of course, not just talking right. about it, it's living upon it, right? Which means, mm -hmm. for example, celebrate your failures make sure that if you do a big qbr you don't only celebrate your wins you also celebrate your failures and in the first place your own failures you're vocal about it if you if you talk about it but you don't do it i've seen many companies talking about it but not doing it yeah 
that's uh that's exactly that's not that's right. a very good one you you have to live it and you you may you made a, a pretty nice transition to maybe the culture at Google itself because I like the you have to celebrate failures. Uh, what does that even mean, actually? Celebrate a failure? Can you explain? Yeah, let me let, let me explain. Yeah, let me show you an example. Um, we launched a product. I think it was called Google Wave uh, quite some time ago. And we worked on it for, I think, two years. We launched it and after 40 days, we took it back, right? Oh. And that was celebrating, celebrated in one of the TGIFs. We said, hey, wow, we took a risk, we failed, and these are all the things we learned from it. And we celebrated it instead of being like with a, with a oh, and firing people, etc. we celebrated it on stage mm. at TGIF in front of the whole company. That's what we have to do. And that's what I'm pushing my team time and again to stand up in front of your colleagues and say, I took a risk, 10x thinking. If you don't take risks, you will never fail. And I did take a risk. I failed and I'm proud of it. And this is what I learned. Love that. It's as simple as that actually, Dylan. Yeah, yeah, no, but I 100% can feel that if you have that energy in the team where everyone can just dare to fail, dare to take the risk. Yeah, once in a while, you will take a risk that will pay off. And if you're okay with the failures, because yeah, yeah you know, it's part of the journey, yeah. then hell yeah. And I understand that that needs to be part of the culture. It's not just one person on the team that can think like that. Everybody should think like that. Yeah, correct. Correct, because you need a lot of failures to have one really good uh, success and if you only have a few failures then you will have probably no no big success right no 100% now Edward I'm also curious when you look back um, are there any you know if, if you would meet your younger self for example or I know you have children if you when you talk to your children what do you say guys I did this and that during my career and that really exponentially boosted my career, uh, try to get it as well, try to do this as well. What, what would you then, no, what would that be? What would you say? Uh, okay, so you're talking about my career now. Um, first, I think I should be very humble. I had a lot of luck in my life uh, in the first place uh, because I'm born in, in a warm uh, family with a mother who cared of me with, with a father who, who talked about life with me and coached me. Um, so I, I'm very lucky about that. And, and that's the basis of, of many uh, things. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I've been luck, lucky in, in my whole career, honestly. Every big career move, there was a big portion of luck. However, you know that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Right, you need to prepare it for the for the luck, and and that's what I try to do actively now. And only from thirty five I started with this, but I try to prepare my life for when the train passes by and I jump on it immediately. So I kind of uh, know what I want in my life and where I want to be and which trains I want to jump in on 
and which trains I don't want to jump on. So Ooh, um, interesting. Luck is probably a very big part of it. Um, secondly, I would say education. Right? We, we we talked about it. I mean, what we did with Economica was not just one big dating uh, environment, but also a big learning school. It was education of life. Um, but also 100%. my MBA, uh, that was a big learning and education. And by doing this, you progress your career. So you have to search also a little bit of what can progress uh, your career. Um, and yeah, because to... To go a little bit deeper on that, and I think that's super interesting, you say only at the age of 35, you kind of understood what you want out of life. And now you're kind of ready to jump on the train when it passes by. But that means that the 35 years before that, you were just living the life without, you know, having a very clear direct. And that's interesting. Maybe, maybe it is, I mean, I don't think it's bad or good, not at all. Um, but maybe you also just needed those 35 years of experience before to know what you wanted out of life. Yeah. Is that also how you kind of feel? Uh, yeah. And maybe, it? maybe it's a good thing that I didn't over engineer my first 35 years. Yeah. True. Good observation, Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> trying my best, Edward. I'm trying my best. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I maybe, Maybe um, a question kind of opposite to, you know, what has accelerated your career, but were you, I mean, had you also kind of false beliefs about what you should do or what you should be or what you should have to be quote unquote successful? Um, uh, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so there's a few that I, that I, thought when I was younger were true, which today I don't think are true. First, for some reason, I thought I needed to have an, be an expat, like work abroad to have a great career. I, I believe that's bullshit now. Um, secondly, I thought I needed to be a manager, like when a manager, while today <laughs> I see a lot of managers who are like doing less impact than let's say individual contributors. Um, so that's the second one. And then the third one, uh, if you want, is um, that you will get rich by working hard. I don't think that's true neither. Hmm. Interesting. But do you think that you should work hard? Nope. No? Nope. Interesting. Why is that? What's what's the the, the, the idea behind you don't... I understand that you don't have to work hard to be rich, but what's the idea then behind you don't have to work hard at all? I just heard today that Wout van Aert, between today and Sunday, so today is uh, Thursday, Friday, right? No, it was actually, mm -hmm. it was uh, Wednesday he went to, 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 to do his last, last uh, training. Between Wednesday mm -hmm. and Sunday, he will do nothing. He will rest to be ready for the race on Sunday. A good okay. sportsman is a man who rests. You win the Tour de France in your bed, right? And the same is true for business. If you're tired, if you work long hours, you can't think clear. You won't perform at the top of your capabilities. As simple as that. So I prefer somebody in my team 
who does not work too hard, but is super sharp when the moment is there. Interesting. All right, I feel you. I would still call it actually work harder because what you're saying is that you need the rest to work even harder. Yes. And to me, that's maybe, maybe you take the rest then because you want to have the extra energy. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, it's a definition thing that it's a, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, you don't need to work long hours. Uh, that's what I mean, basically. Yeah. yeah okay. Okay. I gotcha. Um, yeah, because, um, all right. So yeah, you said you don't have to be an expat. You don't have to be a manager. I also want to go back to the, to the manager thing. Um, because you, you made it sound like it was a, a bad thing to be a manager or that there are, um, uh, connotations to the word of manager or, uh, things that people find, uh, more meaningful than it should be. Um, so what's the idea behind no. maybe you don't have to be a manager to be successful? No, yeah, no, I didn't mean that. Um, when I was younger, I thought being a manager is more important than being an individual contributor. But I oh, realized okay. that some individual contributors have much more impact than managers. Uh, but there's no single, I'm a manager, and there's no single uh, negative connotation of being a manager. No, 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 not at all. And okay, I got gotcha, one gotcha. of your podcasts with Edwin van Waas on, on managers and uh, leaders, and I fully agree <laughs> yeah. what he said. Yeah, definitely. However, so I, I fully agree what he said. You cannot be a good uh, leader without being a good manager. I, I got that. However, I, I have seen and I see managers who are only managers and only check dashboards. And that's their whole mm. life from, from Monday to Friday. What they basically do, they keep their teams busy with making sure the, the, the dashboards are green. And then you're not adding, adding value to, to your company. In contrary, you are taking away value to your company. So, so there's, there's balance there. Right. Yeah. I think the human aspect is still super, super important. Yeah. Correct. All right. So what would you say then as a manager, you know, what, how do you, or no, I will, I will ask this differently, you know, just what, how would you describe your leadership style? Good, good one. Um, <laughs> um, I hope, I hope I can say that my, my leadership style isn't, isn't, yeah, how, how would your team describe your leadership style? Inspiring and supporting. So I try to inspire the team on where we need to go. What's the direction of the company? What's the culture of the company? This is where we need to go. And then I support them so they can be successful. I think mm. those are my two most important. So give direction. No, that's the way we need to go. That's the things we need to do. Huh? And then support, mm -hmm. right? How can, like, every meeting with my team members should be the first and the last meeting is, how can I help you in your job? What can I do to make you successful? I think that's kind of my leadership style. Has it grown towards that leadership style or 
did you know by by kind of nature that you know this was what a great leader should kind of be? No, and it's a very different leadership style than the leadership style at ABM, right? So it depends on which company you work for. I mean, if you're in a in a company where basically you drill your sales and you micromanage them, tack 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 tack. If I would be take this leadership style in this kind of company, I would fail miserably, miserably. But in a in a, in a company like Google where you do 10x thinking, right, and you 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 need to do these moonshot things, that fits much better than in another company. But probably if mm-hmm. I would you know, be a manager in a, in a typically sales company like Duk 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 Duk, I would, I would behave differently. And actually, <laughs> we're, our company is also changing. So I also need to change my leadership style. So, and this is with uh, falling and standing up, right? It's, uh, I made a lot of mistakes against uh, this in the past. So I need to, and, and, I'm, and I'm learning every day still today, actually. Yeah, but... Maybe to to link this to what I read something on. I mean, I read something on your LinkedIn uh, profile that there are a couple of books that tell a lot about you. Mm-hmm. And it was the book Good to Great from Jim Collins. Yeah. Uh, and maybe you should, because I think it links to this topic of leadership, right? Yeah. And maybe you, you can kind of share off, you know, what does it tell you? I mean, what does it tell us then about you? And, and yeah. yeah. What does the book talk about? Maybe you can also explain that. It's a fantastic book. It's a bit more old school book, I must say, but it's a really good book. And there's a few concepts that I try to apply in my life. The first one is uh, first who, then what? So if you do start a company or organize a party or go on, go on a, on a trip, you would normal people would first think, okay, What's our strategy? What are we going to do? Where are we going? What is the party going to be? And then they would think, now, who am I going to invite? Who do I want in my company? With whom are, am I going on holidays? While the great companies do the reverse. They first think, who am I going to do my company with? And then what am I going to do? And who's going to do what? So, and that's how I try to do it in my life too. First, you check who are the ones you want to collaborate with and then what are you actually going to do? So that's a very interesting concept that I try to apply in, in real life. I would say it's even true for sales. Who do I want to work with? Yes. Who do I want to provide services to? And then what do I, what do, I do? Oh, yeah. Love what, it. What are the companies I really want to sell to? to? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Good one. Yeah. And then another one, which is really, that's maybe even more applicable to uh, to sales leadership is what he calls level five leadership, right? Uh, so it's, it's about leaders who are at the same time very humble and at the same time have a very large will to succeed, right? That's okay. the combination of those two make uh, that you are kind of a level five leader. And one of the interesting things is that uh, he uses these quotes. It is amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. That's level five leader. Interesting. And in sales, that is rare, right? <laughs> At the moment that there is a big win, 
it's the deal of everybody and everybody wants it's to be on the stage and a level five leader he does not care who takes the credits that's something that's I had to very do interesting very yeah i think a lot of us a lot of sales can learn that i mean i think that once the deal is being closed and your name is linked to it you feel like the superstar you want some recognition you maybe also deserve some recognition but it's interesting that a level five leader actually would say I, it's not me it's it's the team it's it's all good yeah and the reverse is happening when when you lose a deal the sales would immediately say ah but it's the fault of the price thing is too mm. high nah, 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 nah. the blame game starts right in a normal company but that's how companies that's the difference between a good and a great company yeah and again i think that links also back to the to the culture i think that there the leader actually shapes a lot of the culture if you as a leader can live by those values and by those rules by those principles and you can tr transfer that through the culture you have an organization uh, that's ready to flourish yeah correct do you then sometimes also or how do you also dare to to challenge uh, and push the team to always go you know the extra mile i think that's i mean that that's what i would think of a company such as google that they have that kind of culture is that also true yeah 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 definitely so so we make our plan for the year right we make a plan or a three year plan or five year plan and we make a plan everybody makes a plan on their accounts and uh, and then the first thing, and they know it by now, the first thing I'm asking, okay, let's now do an iteration on this plan and make it a 10x plan. What are the risks we're, we're willing to take to 10x these numbers? What do we need to do? And then, yeah, but if we want to do it, then we would need an investment of, okay, let's build a case, make an investment request to our CEO or whoever, needs to approve it to make this happen. And even if we, we're stuck, in, like if, if, you know, if you don't reach the moon, you will get stuck into the, uh, you will still be amongst the stars, right? That's fine. Exactly. But at least we tried and, and we, will, we may fail. And that's also fine. Um, and but it's the, it's daring to, to try indeed. It's daring to say, what does it ask to go for the 10x? And then if you end with 5x, what the hell, 5x, still amazing. Wow. And then leadership five leader says, no, it's, it's, it's all good. It's okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all yeah. right. How has your work ethic and mindset and, you know, and drive towards work then has kind of, you know, uh, changed with time? A lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> uh, when I started at, you know, it was those days, you, you don't know those days, but it was those days where uh, there was no internet at home, right? So mm. uh, I, I we used to have a rental apartment. Uh, so, um, and, and I would go to the office. Well, I was a consultant, so I would go to my customer at 7 a.m. in the morning before traffic jams and I would be home not before 7 or 8 p.m. in the evening 
And when mm. we got kids, it was a tough job because my wife did the same. It was a tough job to get at the kindergarten uh, before 7 p.m. Uh, so we had some troubles with that. Uh, so that was a work ethic of work hard, long hours, right? It's right. Again, about uh, the semantics we were talking about. <laughs> Uh, today, uh, there are actually periods where there's a lot of work to do, and I am kind of the mid mid eh, uh, on on the on the on on so giving the passes, uh, recouping the ba the balls, running around a lot. <laughs> there are periods like that, but there's also periods where I refuse to do that, that I decline the meetings, I eliminate as much as possible from my calendar. And I stay quiet for the moment that the big deals are need to be do be done. So hmm. it it depends period by period. I must say a little bit. Love it. I felt like you also live by the twenty eighty rule, by time. Then, yeah, is it? Eighty twenty rule is probably the most important rule of the world, in the sense that. Um, you know the 80-20 rule. So 80% of your, 20% uh, of your customers make 80% of your revenues, right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing is true, by the way, in, in business, but also in, in, in private life. 80% of your luck comes from 20% of the people you have contact with. And mm, 80% love it. of your bad luck comes from 20% of the people you get contact with. So you need to eliminate those 20% every year, time and again, the customers, but also in your private life. Dude, I love how you put luck into our own control. I loved it. Oh yeah, definitely. Control the controllables. I feel that a lot of people know that are aware of the 2080 rule, but they don't per se apply it. And even for myself, I find it very, very hard to say no more than to say yes. And to also really define priorities and stick to it. Do you also recognize that sometimes? Oh, yeah. or? I have, uh, I have this book actually, right? I have, I have multiple books like that now. Actually, I have it here. It's on top of it. It says my life. I'm not sure it's Google Cloud book now. It says my life. I just read Google Cloud. <laughs> well, I have multiple books. I have one from the HP time. You can see here. It also says my life on top. You can so I I I, I have these books and uh, for the last 15 years, and every year at Christmas time, I make a big evaluation of my past year, and so basically it all starts with. Uh, happiness. I put the first page is happiness and I take all the aspects of my happiness and then I evaluate all these aspects for the past year. The good, the bad and the ugly. So the 20%, mm. the 80% who makes 20, uh, the 20% who make 80% of my unhappiness also. And then I right. eliminate them one by one. Eliminate. So I make a plan for the year after. And the first thing I do is elimination. And that's something I learned from the book from um, uh, the, the four hour work week from Timothy Ferris, right? Mm, yeah. The first thing you need to do is eliminate 
all waste. And the same is true for the meetings at, at work. Eliminate the meetings who are useless. Um, and I, I can give you tens of examples of things you and I can eliminate in our lives, which makes us much more happy. There's a saying of Antoine de, de Saint-Exupéry, you know, from Le Petit Prince, mm -hmm. who says, uh -huh. happiness exists not when there's nothing more to add, but when there's nothing else to take away. Mm. Less is more. That is good. Right? Less is more. No, 100%. All right. That, that should be a very good exercise for anyone listening to this. What can you eliminate as of today? Look back at your agenda, look back at what you do in terms of activities, look back at the clients you're chasing after. Very good. And typically Edward, when you make a new plan, you only say what you're going to do. What are we going to do next year? Wrong. What are we going to stop doing next year? That should be the question. Inverse thinking. I love that. That's also something I, I learned pretty recently. I think it's just called inverting thinking from Charlie Munger. And he always says, if you want to achieve some certain outcome, don't think of what should I do, but what should I don't do? Think, you know, the inverse way. And then you eliminate, and then you just make sure that you don't do any things of the things you shouldn't do. And then by definition, you just, you know, should at least get to uh, a preferable outcome. So comes, uh, comes, uh, yeah, to what you say. Interesting, Edward. Um, I thank you so much for this conversation. Unfortunately, we are reaching the end of it. Um, if people would love to talk to you, have a chat with you, maybe work alongside you at Google Cloud, you know, how can they? Uh, how can they reach you? Okay, I stopped my Twitter account. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, so Twitter is not an option. Um, LinkedIn is the, the easiest option, I think, uh, to, to get in contact uh, with me, to cold call me if you want. Yeah, uh, <laughs> if you don't have my number, then LinkedIn is the, the easiest way. Are you a fan of cold call or uh, not at all? I'm a big fan of yeah? cold calling. Yeah, yeah I, I love it. Real the hunter. Out, but I am. All right, that's going to be for another discussion then. Okay. Um, Edward, I have one last question for you, a question I ask all my guests. And the question goes as follows. If Edward Boote would be a brand, what would it stand for? A brand? Mm -hmm. a cycling team. Cycling team? 100% cycling team? <laughs> yeah, I love cycling team. Love it. Yeah. Edward van Aert. <laughs> All right, man. I love it. I take it as an answer. <laughs> Again, thanks, Edward, for coming on the show and uh, wish you nothing but the best. See you, Dylan. That's it. We have once again reached the end of an episode. I just really appreciate you all spending your time. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Until next week with a fresh new episode.